This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today, and we're going to be talking about a lot of things, including a rise in Islamophobia in France. Despite, you know, a COVID epidemic, it seems like uh, President Macron would prefer to uh, attack his Muslim community in France rather than deal with a pandemic. We're going to talk about uh, the real tragedy of George Floyd and that trial that's going on right now. But first, before we get to all that, we have a really great interview you did with uh, Farah Nabulsi, who's the director of the Oscar-nominated Best Short Action Film, a Palestinian film, The Present, which uh, it's kind of not typical to have a Palestinian film nominated for an Academy Award. Well, uh, yeah, it's not the first time, So, uh, but, uh, you know, there are not uh, many of them, but this is a great feat to have uh, this nomination, and it's a great interview. Uh, I watched the film uh, on Netflix. It's now on Netflix. So for our audience, uh, well, unfortunately, you have to pay for it, just like everything else. So if you don't have a Netflix, you can watch it. And I think Vimeo also is streaming it now. Uh, It's like about $3 to stream it on Vimeo. Uh, It's a great film. It's like there isn't a boring moment in the film. It's just like it's a short, as you mentioned. It was... uh, you know, it's nominated for the 93rd Academy Awards for Best Live Action Short Film category. So it's 25 minutes long. There isn't a dull moment. And let's uh, watch the interview uh, with Farah Nabulsi. On his wedding anniversary, Yusuf and his daughter Yasmin set out in the West Bank to buy his wife a gift. Between the soldiers, segregated roads, and checkpoints, how easy would it be to go shopping? This is a short synopsis of the movie The Present, which was nominated for the 93rd Academy Awards for Best Live Action Short Film category. Joining us uh, from London, the director of The Present, Farah Nabulsi. Farah is a Palestinian-British filmmaker and first-time director Welcome to Arab Talk and congratulations to you and to your crew, Farah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I watched the film with my wife and we both loved it. The story is very relatable to every Palestinian who lives in Palestine or who has visited there, yet it's very complex to outsiders, but you, made it, you really made it very relatable to anyone. How challenging was it for you to convey the message in 25 minutes? Challenging. You know, no, it, it, it actually came to me as a very simple story. And, and that's just it. Um, I think there are so many things that Palestinians go through under Israeli military occupation um, that so many people take for granted so many hardships, so many humiliations, so many simple daily things that people around the world take for granted um, that Palestinians have to deal with. Um, so for me, uh, this is just one element of uh, you know a much bigger problem. And, and the checkpoints, these Israeli checkpoints are just 
one part of a bigger control system that exists. So I was actually focusing in on just one element and then focusing in further on one man and his daughter or one family, knowing that it was reflective of a much bigger uh, macro situation for millions of Palestinians, but also knowing it was part of a much bigger structure of control. And um, and just told the story how it was. It was just, he's going to go buy a gift, which anywhere else in the world is a pretty straightforward thing to do. So it, 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 it wasn't tough, actually. It wasn't tough in that sense. It was, tell the story how it is. And all those complexities will, will reveal themselves in that sense. Um, and, they, and they do. So you were born and, and raised in the UK, uh, worked in the corporate world. Uh, I believe in 2013, you decided it was time to take travel with your kids uh, to Palestine. Your parents uh, were against it, but <laughs> nevertheless, you went. I read somewhere that this experience was utterly transformative to you. Uh, how so? Well, look, that first trip, um, yes, I went um, with a couple of my kids, not all of them. And my parents weren't against it, but they were reluctant. You know, there's that kind of inherited trauma where, you know, a sort of uh, reluctance. Um, I then followed up with another trip quite soon afterwards, which was longer and more dynamic, to be honest. And that's the one I could point to to say was the utterly transformative one. Um, and for me, it was it was basically that growing up in London, I really thought I understood, you know, what's going on in Palestine. I've, I've read the books and I've watched, you know, the news in that sense. And I've, I've I felt like I'd read through the sound bites and the censorship, censorship and all of that. But the truth is, when you go to Palestine and, and you see with your own two eyes what's going on on the ground in reality, whether it's the wall plowing between Palestinian lands and villages, the refugee camps or the, the checkpoints, the, the permit systems and the separate you know, identification systems, or meeting with, with people who actually experienced their children being taken in the middle of the night, or people whose homes have been demolished, that's a very different impact and uh, realization than reading about any facts or figures you might come across when you don't see it with your own two eyes. Um, and that really impacted me. So it kind of sounds cheesy, but it was a life-changing trip. And then after that, I decided to sort of keep visiting uh, a few more times in that sense to really get a feel for what's really going on. And, uh, and that's it. You, you, for me, it was... Uh, it was un I was unable to kind of look away and sympathy and charity wasn't enough. So I wanted to express the stories of the people I, I was meeting and I wanted to express myself creatively and uh, literally changed the trajectory of my life and started to make films. Is this, is this when you kind of made the connection and because you also refer to yourself as a human rights activist and a filmmaker? It kind of... This is, is this when they both blended in? So in terms of uh, human rights activists, I don't actually refer to myself as an activist. I prefer to refer to advocate. Um, I feel that I can't do justice to, to activism in the sense that I know a lot of people who are activists and they put their lives 
on the line. And I, I, I don't go to that extent. But what it is, is that I want to make films that actually have an impact on our community and, and on the world. Um, and in many ways, films are a way of knowing who we are and where we are as a society. So I definitely want to make films that go beyond entertainment. But what I found was that while I was touring with my films um, and doing Q&As um, all around the world, people really, really wanted to know more. And, um, and I felt that it wasn't enough to just sort of present through my various art what's happening, you know, in, in reality. Um, I want to go that extra mile, that extra step to actually advocate um, for the rights of Palestinians, for their freedom, for equality. Often you say, you know, if not a Palestinian for Palestine, then, then who? So while I, I, I certainly expect and want people around the world to stand in solidarity with Palestinians and advocate and take action, you have to lead by example. You know, and so it, it it went beyond the films. It was okay. So we set up a, a, a an online platform, oceansofinjustice.com. It takes the same name as my first film, um, where we deconstructed occupation, so that when I'm at a Q and A or when I'm advocating online on my social media or anywhere else, if I'm talking on a panel, I can direct people to to that platform to learn more, to understand more. And then of course, you know, that intersectionality with other organizations and uh, and just really just using my platform to talk about the issues beyond just the film. And, you know, this is how I, I advocate and I've just chosen to do that a step further. It's fantastic. So the casting was amazing. Uh, uh, those who know Palestinian uh, films know the main character uh, played by Saleh Bakri. I mean, he's well known. But everyone else was amazing. Every single, I mean, the choice, your choice was really amazing. You know, from, of course, his young daughter in the film, Yasmin, played by Maryam uh, Kanj, was also amazing. The mother was amazing. The whole thing. Uh, was it difficult for you uh, to cast them? No, you know, um, interestingly enough, so when I was co-writing the script with um, Hinch Chofani, who's another Palestinian filmmaker in her own right, and um, she asked me, she said, who do you envisage as, as the role of Yusuf? And I said to her, I keep, uh, I keep seeing Saleh Bakri, you know? And she said, oh, I know him. Not super well, but I have his email. Let's connect. So she connected me with him uh, and he read the script and he really appreciated the simplicity of it and the story, and uh, and he liked it. And he was, uh, he said, "Yep, he's very interested to play the role." And then the conversation began and continued. So actually, that for me was the world conspiring, and I didn't, of course, have to audition anyone for that. Um, in terms of Miriam Kenj, again, it was like a godsend because I knew her aunt, and I happened to be visiting her, and I said to her, "Oh, I've you know cast Saleh Bekti, and I want to cast a." a young eight-year-old. I'd like her to look like her father, which is a bit tricky because he has these pretty brilliant blue eyes and um, and uh, speak great Arabic and ideally be in Palestine and, 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 um, because her aunt doesn't live in, in, in Palestine in Palestine. And she said, what about my niece? So she shows me a picture of her niece and I swear it took my <laughs> breath away. Not only, yeah, not only is she absolutely gorgeous, but she looks like, she looks like Saleh Bekli. She looks more like him than her own father. I mean, I always joke about this. <laughs> um, and then I went to meet her and I fell in love with her. 
I mean, she's she's just this emotional intelligence. She's confident with adults, with strangers. Her father, her father, complete also coincidence, was already being hired as the production designer on the film. So she has been on sets before. So while she hasn't acted on sets, she um she, she's comfortable, you know. And like I said, just emotional intelligence, absolutely beautiful, very her eyes have a, a, so much expression. Um, and um, so it just worked out wonderfully. And then Meriam Kamal Basha, uh, who's the wife, the mother, um, and is the daughter of a well-known actor, um, uh, you know, she she was just wonderful as well when I met her. And uh, a little on the young side, but, you know, we managed to pull her off to, to look a little bit older. And... Um, it just it just worked beautifully, and the 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 muscle guy in the in the fridge in the fridge shop, or I shouldn't actually have given that away, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, in the electronic shop, <laughs> um, I actually found him in a in a in a gym in Bethlehem at eleven at night, forty eight hours mm-hmm. before shoot. So that was a that was a close call, but uh, so you know you hustle as well. Yeah, no, no, no. Every, every everyone was really. Perfect, and I thought the ending was beautiful. I mean, just uh, you know, with uh, Yasmin uh, played by Mariam, mm. uh, just like uh, you know, pushing well, whatever the fridge and, <laughs> uh, and 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 walking away. I thought that was just like just said the whole story, kind of like really mm. wrapped it up so beautifully without saying too much. No words, yeah. just that that's kind of the strongest uh, kind of message of, for me, resilience and defiance. Mm. Yes, certainly so. I mean, I wouldn't want to ruin this for people, but yes, the idea was to offer an alternative, you know, um, and exactly what you said, resilience and defiance. And maybe it's the youth that are coming out stronger and wiser, we hope. What do you hope, uh, you know, for people who see the film, uh, will take away from it? What's the takeaway? I always say, like, as a filmmaker, regardless of what film I'm making, I want to give audiences an emotional experience. Um, and when we feel emotion, we feel alive. And that's what pretty much most filmmakers would like their films to do, regardless. But I certainly want to leave audiences contemplating after they've watched this film and, and wondering what such a life is like for for Yusuf and Yasmin and and, and Palestinians at large, um, and and to ask themselves if if they would accept this for themselves. I think this is a really important point to make. Um, and of course, if that leads to people wanting to learn more, um, and even eventually taking action, all the better. And what I do find is from Western audiences who really don't know much about what's what's going on, that they are doing that, that they're researching. I mean, when I get interviewed by journalists um, from the West, um, they actually say, I I started to research, you know, the checkpoints. I started to research things that I actually didn't know were happening uh, because, of course, I'm talking about sort of more entertainment journalists, for example. Um, and that's uh, it's music to my ears when I hear that um, because it, it goes beyond the film. It goes beyond the film. Yeah. So, of course, we're talking about the present, uh, which was nominated for an Oscar. And uh, it actually was nominated for, uh, 
to many awards, like for Best British Short at the BAFTA. It also won several awards at international film festivals. It's playing right here in the U.S. on Netflix. Uh, and that's easy. You could watch it uh, on your TV or uh, on your iPad. So you have all these accolades now. Uh, has it all set in for you? <laughs> Honestly, no. You heard me a second ago where I actually even blanked when we were talking. I'm absolutely exhausted is the truth. And, um, and I, I, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I haven't had a chance to really enjoy it yet. Mm. Um, uh, in terms of, I mean, I've enjoyed the journey, don't get me wrong. And I'm thrilled again, don't get me wrong, but really what's come with that is a great deal of responsibility and a great deal of attention. And I want to be able to give it the attention it needs and deserves. Um, because like I've said, it goes beyond the film. Um, so no, it hasn't sunk in, but every now and then when I'm in a quiet moment, I do think about it and I go, wow, okay. You know, this, this has come a long way. And, um, and I'm uh, over the moon, over the moon. Very happy. Fantastic. Any new projects uh, on the horizon? There is. There is the debut feature film. Uh, I can't say much about it, um, except that, you know, it's a character-driven drama thriller set in the same landscape. So, so for the best. Farah Nabulsi, director of The Present, which was nominated for the 93rd Academy Awards for Best Live Action Short Film category. Thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's uh, director uh, Farah Nabulsi, uh, director of The Present, the Academy Award, the Academy nominated and hopefully award-winning Palestinian film. Uh, what a delightful interview, Jamal. Yeah, it's very, I would say, very compelling. It's a, it's a, it's a great film. I'm hoping that it will win. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. Uh, it's a very basic story, uh, yet very complex, just for people who have not been to Palestine. Right. It's a story of uh, a man who wants uh, to, uh, to bring a present to his wife. Right, and if you've been to Palestine, like you, you and I, and many times, going from town to town and it's, crossing Israeli checkpoints, uh, it could be a nightmare, uh, you know, for many. When, uh, um, of course, uh, Israeli colonial settlers, they just zip through those checkpoints, and by the way, use roads that are only allotted uh, to them and not to Palestinians. Uh, so it makes, you know, it's, a, it's also a heartwarming story. I mean, it gives, I don't want to give a lot. Don't give it away, plot, yeah. But uh, I recommend, again, if you have not watched the film, go to, if you have a Netflix account, just search for it, The Present. It will pop, uh, you know, for you, pop out there and you can play it or, or use Vimeo uh, also because now it's streaming on Vimeo. And for our listeners and people who watch us uh, overseas, just check it out. I don't know if you can stream uh some countries don't allow to stream uh, Netflix, but there are other right. platforms. Just uh, Google it. But I think, uh, Jamal, the, the, as a segue, you know, it's kind of interesting. We have such an amazing, beautiful, heartwarming story about, you know, 
life in Palestine. And yet we have juxtaposed with that kind of um, this really disturbing emergence in France yet again of uh, using Islamophobia and the Muslim community as a way to avoid dealing with the harsh realities of the pandemic. This is not just in France. We see this in other countries with Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's doing the same thing. But Europe and France in particular, Jamal, have really dropped the ball significantly when it comes to dealing with the COVID pandemic. You have less than 10% of Europeans who in fact have been vaccinated. And you have starting today, Jamal, a month locked a month long lockdown in total in France. And how is President Macron dealing with this harshness of the lockdown? He's attacking the French Muslim community yet again. You're absolutely right. And this is, by the way, the start of a third national lockdown in France in a desperate move to halt the the new deadly deadly wave. So they've been going through this lockdown kind of after like more than a year of lockdowns and months of, I would say, sputtering vaccination campaign. It's not good. Uh, sputtering is right. To, yeah, it's sputtering. And, and it's, if the French efforts to curb the coronavirus pandemic, uh, pandemic is surging. Hospitals are swelling with patients. And now, because, you know, they opened and opened schools, so now the virus is reaching into classrooms. That's right. Uh, because Macron uh, basically gambled uh, to keep France open in hope that a steady pace of vaccinations would make a lockdown and not unnecessary. This was his big gamble. And he it's lost. Kind of like, he lost. And he said, like, we're going to open up, but we'll keep vaccinating and right. eventually... And now things have, uh, have gotten out of control, and he lost control. Basically, they've lost control, so they're back to the lockdowns. So we've seen this in other countries, I mean, even including here, um, during Trump, right? Trying uh, well, kind of like, uh, you know. But having... not just Trump, Jamal. We have 23 states that are seeing significant increases in the United States. 23 states, including my my uh, home state of uh, Michigan, which saw a 56% increase in the number of cases with hospitalizations and deaths increasing rather dramatically. So France it's a, and Europe, it's particularly bad. But uh, let's make no mistake about it. A lot of politicians have gambled with opening versus vaccinations. And a lot of these politicians have bet incorrectly Macron's bet is particularly damaging because the rate of increase and the number of people being infected and dying is increased. It's going to overwhelm the French healthcare system. Well, here is the pattern, and we've seen it here with uh, white supremacy and so forth. When, when politicians gamble and lose, they try to shift the attention and shift the spotlight to another issue. They create another issue. We've seen this here. A racial issue, know, yeah. Whether it's, whether, it's the, whether it's the refugees or the Mexicans or brown people, whatever. So in France now, Emmanuel Macron's government has ramped up anti-Muslim anti rhetoric. 
And as, as you know, the presidential elections are approaching. That's right. So you have like Francis, uh, re recently right-wing interior minister, Gerald uh, Darmanin, uh, who basically is on a crusade against the country's Muslim minority, which is a very large minority, and uh, the latest anti-Muslim controversy basically happened and uh, because there was a, a planned construction uh, of a mosque in northwestern France. Right. So just this past Monday, and this is in the city of Strasbourg, uh, it's a, actually a pro progressive city. I think uh, the mayor is from the Green Party. Right. Her name is Jean uh, Barzagian. And she approved a grant just uh, for three million, uh, approximately three million dollars, for this uh, foundation to start building a, a mosque. And then uh, Darmanin went berserk. He went berserk, kind of like Donald Trump on Twitter, you know, egging people, telling them that the Muslims are taking over the country. They're having mosques. Uh, he called it. Uh, he called uh, that now Strasbourg is shifting towards political Islam. I mean, all all that Crazy you have stuff. to do is read, uh, you know, some French newspapers like Le Monde and others. And of course, you know, Macron earlier. And if you recall, we've had two interviews with um, a excellent uh, uh, Muslim uh, advocate, I would say from France, and hopefully we'll have her. Yeah, we should get her back next, on. In the next week uh, or two. But basically, uh, he uh, created a charter. It's a document, that's a new document, and wanted all uh, Muslim community leaders, imams, etc., to adopt it. So, uh, and they published it in, in, in January, and of course, several Muslim organizations refused to sign it. And I'll tell you, I mean, it's, it's not hard to guess why they refuse to sign it. And he's been threatening them. You know, Macron's government and his interior minister have been trying to pressure them and threaten them publicly. Just this is publicly threatening them and threatening anyone who criticizes the charter. Of course, French human rights organizations have accused them of engaging in the intimidation, in, in, in an intimidation campaign right, uh, you know, trying to intimidate the Muslims. And so the charter, uh, just it has a bunch of articles, and in particular one article, Article 9, which states that the denunciation of alleged state racism, like here we, we can criticize and say, yeah, we have racism in this country. If you say that there is racism or anti-Muslim sentiment that the government, you know, this would be considered in France as an act of defamation. Unbelievable. So this is, he wants you to say, you know, so you, you can be taken to trial and tried for defamation. The document even says that speaking about state racism, and this is between quotes, uh, exasperates both anti-Muslim hatred and anti-France hatred. So things have been like, really crazy. Now you have the interior minister, you have the president of France, you have, of course, don't forget about the far right, Marie, Marie Le, Pen, Le Pen, right? which by the way, is leading now in the polls. So we, we're, we haven't even scratched the, 
the surface. She has a chance of really winning, Jamal. So, uh, yeah, so, so uh, Muslims, uh, you know, the imams cannot, basically, you're, you're, you know, uh, in your sermon, you, you're supposed just to pray and leave. If you say anything that is what is described political, or you hint it's a political, or talk about social issues, talk about human rights, talking about the Muslim community is uh, under, under, underpaid or underserviced or anything like this, you'll end up in jail. So, Jamal, I have three words for you. Is this egalite, fraternite, liberte? This sounds not for, like... Not, not for Muslims. Well, that's what I was going to say, Jamal. It's, the, it's the, a reminder, basically, just of what Israel practices, uh, Jewish democracy. So only one segment of the population can enjoy this. And France, what you said is the... You know, the liberté, égalité, and fraternité, liberty, and equality, and fraternity is non-existent now. Not to, for the Muslim community in France. France's largest minority, basically. But isn't it about 17% of the French population are Muslim? I mean, we say it's a minority of the French population, but it's a large minority segment of French society, which has been attempting to feel at place and at home in France for many, many decades, decades and decades, Jamal. And we're now going on how many three and four generations of, of uh, you know, displaced North Africans, especially from Algeria and other parts of North Africa who, you know, are former, you know, colonial servants of the French imperial uh, order, especially in Algeria, who want to be part of French society. And this is the old tactic that Macron wants to use to try to bolster his attempt to win another re-election. Jamal, this could backfire in such a catastrophic way that this could lead to the, uh, it could lead to the election of a world-class Islamophobe and racist in Marie Le Pen. This is really pretty damaging period of time for French society. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, the Europe in general and France in, in particular and uh, several countries have been drifting to the right. We know that for several years. I mean, this is like it just they're drifting, whether be it in France or in Germany or others, they're drifting to the right. And, and France, historically, what they've had, uh, they've have a, a very rigid and extreme secularism uh, law known as the laicite, right. which regulates a strict separation of church and state, which is fine. However, uh, they've just have been targeting Muslims in particular. Okay, so it's not just like about like, for example, there is there is there are no attempts trying to stop the building. You know, if you visited France, it's full of churches, right? It's yeah. like historically and beautiful churches that everybody likes to, to visit. And there are no restrictions of building new churches or synagogues or whatever. But when Muslims try to build a mosque, all hell breaks loose. And this particular incident that I was telling you about, which is basically in Strasbourg, has a, a, a Strasbourg in, in a way does not recognize this new law, laicite, you know, because uh, it's very complex. I, I try to go briefly if, uh, if you want to talk about that. They have the under the Concordat, 
which is the you know the region in the Alsace Moselle region. It is set. It is governed by by a set of laws dating back to 1801. Right. Okay. Right. So, you know, so while the rest of France abrogated the Concordat in 19 of, uh, 1905, originally signed under uh, the Napoleon era, the region of Strasbourg at the time was under German control. Right. See, because it, it was so so basically when the region became part of France uh, after World War one these uh, those unique laws remained in force so they have their own kind of set of uh, you know of laws and that's why it's not a big issue for them to support the building of a mosque or 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 they don't really adhere that much to the separation of church and state and uh, you know, the central government in Paris is trying to kind of draw them in this whole big campaign. It's yeah. actually the Macron it's a, campaign. It's it's a it's a losing it's a losing campaign, and I'll I'll tell you why, Jamal, because this is an attempt, as we said earlier, to avoid the painful, harsh reality of what's happening with the COVID pandemic in France and throughout Europe, which leaders have failed Europeans. The European Union has failed Europe in, in their attempt to, you know, safeguard communities around this pandemic. And the formula that Macron is using is no different than Bolsonaro in Brazil, Jamal, no different than what the extreme right in this country is doing in states that refuse to acknowledge the pandemic and are opening things up very quickly. We see that we talked about this for a number of weeks now. The pandemic is failing in a lot of states, but what are we what are we seeing? Attacks on Asian Americans throughout this country. So hate and racism seem to be the antidote for these right wing extremist politicians, whether it's in South America, Europe, or here in the United States. And I'd have to say, Jamal, it's a real losing formula. This well, the the, the worst is yet to come in France because the far right leader. Marine Le Pen is ahead in the polls for the 2022 presidential elections. Unbelievable. And here are the polls. Almost 60% of French people disapprove of the job Macron is doing. So this could be her opportunity. I mean, remember her father, he tried many times to become president. And now this could be the opportunity. And then if she comes into power, even though I remember Last time talking to our guest, she said, at least, well, we know it's kind of like the election of Donald Trump. Like, you know what he's all about. Like, they know what is she, you know, you know, Macron tries to kind of market himself as being progressive. And and yet he, yeah, he has all these. And he's not. But at least, you know what she's all about. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Just we're going to move. Uh, to a local subject here, basically, what we've been, you and I have been watching on TV in the rest of the country and, and possibly the rest of the world, it's, which it's is the painful. trial of uh, former police officer Derek Chauvin. And I don't know how many times uh, you watched all these horrific uh, different now videos that have emerged of the... Uh, lynching 
and the murder of George Floyd, but every time you watch it, every time people relive this horror, I mean, it's terrible. Well, that's right, Jamal. And the main theme of the first four days, three and a half now, four days of the trial, the the murder trial of police officer Derek Chauvin, the main theme that has come up with all of the um, witnesses for the prosecution, everyone has broken down in tears. Every single one of them says they feel profound guilt at bearing witness to the murder of George Floyd and then not doing anything about it. And every single one of these witnesses has relived the trauma, the brutal trauma of of having to stand by and feel helpless in the face of a murder by a by a police officer right in front of their eyes. This is not just trauma for the witnesses, Jamal. It's a trauma for all of us who have had to watch this video time and time again of this police officer brutally kill uh, George Floyd. And I have to tell you, this this is only going to get worse. We're going to be reliving this every single day for weeks to come. This trial could go on for four weeks. And the defense so far is so painfully weak that I'm still concerned, Jabal, that um, even though the facts are speaking very loudly, that this police officer, like hundreds of police officers, are going to get away yet again with murdering a black man in this country. Yeah, and the defense, I don't know what they're trying to pull. I mean, here's what they're trying to pull. Obviously, under the Constitution, everyone is entitled to a defense. But here's but what now, they're trying to by pull. By the way, with a new video, we learned that it wasn't an eight minute. Uh, it was nine video. minutes and a half. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Yeah, yeah. As uh, Chauvin pushed his knee uh, basically, uh, you know, on top of. Uh, um, George, George Floyd's, Floyd's neck, uh, and that's uh, basically what uh, I've listened to some uh, experts saying that this is is a blood choke. It's a well, they had one of the witnesses that they used that, it in the MMA. Right, and, and that's what one of the witnesses said this week, Jamal. One of the witnesses was an MMA fighter who called this a blood choke hold, which basically is the death. It's a death hold. You know, that you get that you put on somebody if you want them to pass out. And if you hold it too long, they will die. In George- well, they usually pass out in less than 10 seconds and they tap out and the judge uh, or the referee comes and, and right. stops the fight. But this went on for nine minutes, 29 seconds. So here's the defense, Jamal. They're going to say, and we call this blaming the victim. The defense is saying George Floyd did not die from being choked to death. George Floyd died because they found traces of drugs in his bloodstream. They found traces of methamphetamine, fentanyl, and some other things. And they're saying that's what killed him. Well, I have breaking news. If those substances were found, he was doing just fine. Uh, You look at the video of him in the store. You look at the video of him, you know, in, in other places trying to get out of the car. He was doing just fine until... This police officer put his knee on the neck and, you know, the arteries and on the muscles and on the nerves of this 
this desperate man for nine and a half minutes pleading with him uh, to stop because he couldn't breathe. This is such a painful tragedy, Jamal, and it's it's going to leave a mark on all of us for a very long time. Well, I was reading from the autopsy report, the uh, Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Andrew Baker, uh, who is actually a key witness in the case, noted that the, the drugs in Floyd's system, including phenytoin and I think uh, methamphetine, uh, but he said that's not the cause of his it's, death. Of course it's he not the cause that, of death. He said the death is homicide, and he listed the cause of the death as cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating uh, uh, law enforcement subdual, restraint, and neck compression. Absolutely. That's, the, that's how he died. It has nothing to do with the drug. So, so I don't know what other than that. You know what drives me crazy, Jess? I mean, I know you have to go through this painful, and, 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 uh, and uh, I feel very sorry for uh, uh, Floyd's family that they have to keep watching and witnessing the death of their son over and over again is what when I, I was watching it because we didn't pay either you know initially we didn't pay to all the details but you know what's worse than Chauvin or just as bad maybe not worse nobody's worse than Chauvin in that case but this other officer I think to Tao who stood like just stood there in guard guarding basically any attempts and then and i was listening to the different conversations and some of them were on the stand the uh, the woman who is from the uh, the witness who was from, from the, fire the fire department, department yeah pleading with him and he's saying well if you know if you're if you're indeed if you are from the fire department you should know not to interfere with the with police business and then another person also everyone who's trying to kind of plead with him and and tell him look behind you look the guy is is listless he's he's practically dying and he just like stood guard i mean wouldn't even budge i think you know that was to me uh you know and then of course the other angles of the video including the video from chauvin uh, camera you know you know they just like no well, how do you describe? I was looking at his face. I wouldn't say he was like as if he was enjoying it, but he but was he wasn't emotionless. Suffering. He wasn't suffering. He was emotionless. I mean, as a uh, an expert in human in the human mind, Jess, how do you describe this action when you say you're you're killing someone and someone is calling for his mama and and telling you I can't breathe, and the, and he's emotionless. What type of person is that? Well, it's no different from this history in this country, Jamal, where there used to be, not that long ago, public lynchings and burning of African-American men in the public square where people would gather around and murder African-American men, women, and children as part of a blood sport. And that legacy in the United States, Jamal, is still with us today where you can have an officer of the state, a police officer, using state power and state authority to essentially murder yet another African-American and have no emotion associated with it. If you read some of the depictions and stories of the lynchings that used to occur in, this, in the United States, Jamal, and again, not that long ago, 
people would would be cheering the lynchings and the burning of uh, at the cross of of African American men. So this psychological legacy of you know murder in in the name of white supremacy uh, has a long history in this country, and it allows people to commit these acts of murder with impunity and without emotion. It's it's very dark, Jamal. It's very frightening. And that part of this history of the United States and this culture is, you know, been around a long time. And tragically, I don't see that it's going away anytime soon. Well, you you and I are old enough to remember the Rodney King video, which uh, shocked everyone because that was pretty much the first video or the first abuse and beating and 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 again beating an, another African American man who was uh, where we have it on them. video, right? We had it on video, and then we thought that kind of like exposed many things that people weren't able to witness, and that would change things. It didn't change now, anything. Now it didn't. So now, do you think with this no. attention, with no. this trial, with all these different? It's not one video. We find out now there's like a half a dozen videos, different angles of this. What happened? Uh, blow by blow, I, I have it's to not say, gonna second change, by Jamal. second, nothing's going to change. You no. think people are no. not, at least law enforcement uh, agencies are, are, are not going to learn a lesson? No, because the legacy of the KKK, the legacy of burning African Americans at the cross, the legacy of lynching, the legacy of the Confederacy, all of the legacies of white supremacy after the Civil War that were not dealt with directly, which we've talked about on this show, have been festering for a hundred plus years, Jamal. And, you know, we like to think that we're making progress in this country. But remember, George Floyd, as tragic as it is, we have thousands of African American men, boys, adolescents, women children who are being killed every day at the hands of state-sponsored police officers and and white supremacists. So it's one step in a long process of getting change in this country, Jamal. But I'm afraid that it's not going to change things in the way that you and I would hope, that it would open people's eyes. This is, in, in some ways, I would say it's more painful because we're seeing it, and yet African-American men are being killed every day still. It's tragic. Yeah, it, indeed, it's tragic. And uh, as you said, we're going to be uh, probably witnessing uh, this, this, this trial going on. And then there is the trial for the other two officers and the other officers. So that, that this uh, George Floyd lynching and murder will continue to haunt everyone as it should hunt year. us. It and should hunt should, us. It should. I was hoping that you would say, well, people learn a lesson. They don't. This would be something, and apparently that's not going to be the case. White supremacists uh, don't learn a lesson, Jamal. What we do know is that, and we see this politically now with the Republicans who are trying to change voting rights and limit voting in this country still, is that when 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 the ruling class, when the white ruling class, political class, and the white supremacists feel that their power and authority is being challenged, as it is now, 
they don't react by accepting the change, Jamal. They react it by being even more brutal, even more aggressive, doing more things to limit voting, and will attempt to reassert their dominance over communities of color in this country. So I think we need to get our seatbelts on. You know, an Asian woman, Asian American woman was attacked in New York City yesterday or two days ago, and nobody came to her assistance. They shut the door as this woman lay on the ground bleeding. A store owner shut the door and didn't even help this woman. So we're going backwards. We're not going forwards as a society. And that's a statement about how disturbing times are right now. So the only, uh, I wouldn't call it protection, or at least uh, the only weapon that you can use is your uh, camera or your iPhone or your camera and your words and political power. And what we have to do is, you know, the attempt to restrict voting rights, we have to fight that every step of the way. And what's happening in Georgia with an attempt to criminalize the ability for every Georgian to be able to vote freely, to criminalize the ability to vote. We have to confront that. We have to deal with that. We have to reestablish the authority that, you know, we're going to have a place where we live in this country where everybody who is able to can and should be freely allowed to vote and you know, that's a, that's foundational. And until we kind of confront all of those things, Jamal, as I said before, I'm just worried that we're, we're in for a tough road right now. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>